Jack Scannell is one of the world's leading pharmaceutical industry analysts, as well as one of its most visionary. Jack caused a case of global pharmaceutical R&D indigestion when a decade ago, he identified in a groundbreaking Nature publication that, unlike in the semiconductor industry, which had seen the doubling of its productivity every 10 years, the exact opposite was true for the biopharmaceutical sector, where productivity had instead halved in each successive decade. Jack was head of discovery and research at eTherapeutics, an Oxford-based biotechnology firm. He's also worked for the Boston Consulting Group and until recently was the co-head of pharmaceuticals and equity research for UBS Bank. Jack, it's always a pleasure to see you, sir. How are you doing? Very well, and thank you very much for the flattering introduction. <laughs> well, I think it's all true, Jack, is it? I mean, <laughs> didn't make anything up. I know you probably get sick of talking about it, but the fact is you did invent the thing called Irum's Law, where you basically saw that the pharmaceutical industry was running at Moore's Law in reverse. Can you describe what Irum's Law was, how you stumbled across it, and has it improved? We named it Erim's Law because we wanted a striking name, and I, and I can't precisely remember how we came up with it. I think, you know, me or possibly a guy called William Baines said it was like Moore's Law backwards. And the particular thing we were thinking about was the ugly contrast between the sort of technical inputs, which seem to be getting hundreds, thousands, millions, or billions of times better and cheaper. You know, say for example, DNA sequencing had over the previous twenty years got you know millions, possibly billions of times cheaper. Many other technologies, again, had got much, much better. X-ray crystallography had got, you know, thousand times cheaper. But the industry was spending 100 times more per drug it discovered in inflation-adjusted terms around 2010 than it was in 1950. Uh, and we wanted to sort of highlight this contrast between sort of increasing input efficiency and declining output efficiency. And in broad terms, you know, there were two there were two, two broad classes of explanation. One was there was some sort of resource depletion problem. I we were running out of something, right? That's one way that the inputs can get better, but the output can get harder or, or more expensive. And the other way is that what had happened is that we'd started doing the wrong things with incredible efficiency, right? And I always used to joke that if you worked in the drug industry or in academic R&D, the more you regarded one of those explanations as preposterous, the more you were forced to agree with the other, right? right? Because they were, they were the only really two explanations. Down. So the paper was an attempt just to be much more overt and explicit about those trends and try and provoke a bit of sensible discussion about what, what, could, what the cause could be. And so what was the reaction when you published it? What did the industry say? I mean, we'd known that things were getting more expensive, but had it been quantified like that before? Had anyone discussed it in that fashion? So, so actually, I shouldn't take too much credit for quantifying it. You know, a guy called Fred Stewart, actually, who I do a bit of work with now, and, and possibly others, had sort of drawn graphs showing an exponential increase in R&D costs per drug discovered, you know, and some of those graphs probably dated back to the mid 80s. I think what we did is we probably emphasized a bit more the contrast between output and input efficiency trends. Uh, uh, we gave it a catchy name and we speculated on the causes. Um, and I think one after we speculated and put names to the causes, I think most of them were relatively uncontroversial with the possible exception of, you know, uh, some criticisms of you know, sort of brute force, high throughput approaches. Sure. Um, but I think most of the other things were when we named them, people sort of said, oh, yes, that I, I do see that that's kind of, 
that's kind of one of the problems. One of the four challenges you mentioned first, I guess the, we'll start off with the better than the Beatles problem, which I, I'm always quite fond of. Can you describe what the better than the Beatles problem is? Obviously, it's kind of obvious, but... Yes, yeah, so, so I think the, the drug industry, and, and there's one or two other similar industries, probably the crop protection chemical industry is similar, and there may be one or two others. It's a funny industry in that it's an intellectual property business where people don't get bored of old intellectual property. Right, and, and, and the reason we call it the better than the Beatles problem is... Um, you know, because imagine, and again, this is a sort of a generational analogy, you know, people may not be as fond of the Beatles as, as people were a few years ago. But the analogy was this, you know, imagine that every new record had to A, be better than the Beatles, B, you could download all the old Beatles records for free, and C, people didn't get bored of listening to the Beatles. Right? If you had those three criteria, it would be very difficult to launch, successfully launch new records. Now, that is pretty much the way the drug industry works. And I think the example used in the paper for the Beatles, the drug equivalent of the Beatles was metformin, a, a, a very good diabetes drug. Metformin is very safe. It's almost free. Um, it's incredibly effective. And doctors don't get bored of prescribing it. That means, and that's a problem for anyone trying to discover new diabetes drugs, particularly as over time, in a particular therapy area, you will get more and more and more of these tried and tested cheap, effective genericized drugs. So you have this sort of ever increasing, you've got this sort of set of low cost competitors that squeezes the R&D efforts into those areas where historically R&D has been unsuccessful. And we just had a recent example of that with uh, PCSK9 gene therapies that looked really great. And, you know, everyone was writing in 2013, 2014, these were going to be, you know, a $5 billion, $4 billion a year asset, the next Lipitor in quotes, except Lipitor that year had gone generic. And so there was no reason for the next Lipitor. You had Lipitor basically free. And PCSK9, regardless if it was 20% more effective or 15% more effective, the fact is Lipitor was free. Do you think this is having a cooling effect or a pall, putting a pall on certain areas of research where we're not going to get better cardiovascular drugs? Oh, yeah. So, so it, 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 I think it largely explains where the drug industry is now active. Right. So, you know, generics are the gifts that keep on giving in the particular therapy areas in which they exist. Arguably, you know, if you look at what's in drug industry pipelines now, things are being pushed into rare diseases where arguably the economics have become more attractive in recent years and arguably the discovery methods work a bit better, particularly if you're doing target based drug discovery. And in oncology, where actually treatments are still pretty poor for people with advanced solid cancers. Right. And, you know, for depression or for, you know, hypertension, you know, which still cause huge mor morbidity uh, and mortality in the case of hypertension. It's, it's pretty difficult. The economics of trying to develop new medicines is much, much more difficult. Sure. But then again, we still have 300 plus failures now in Alzheimer's disease and counting. And regardless of how much we've tried to find something, we're not finding anything. In many ways, do you, we'll get the next one here. Is that a cautious regulator problem or is that something? I mean, the cautious regulator problem was another thing we discussed in the paper. And again, I think if I was rewriting the paper now, I would call it something else. I think I was unfair, we were unfair <laughs> on the regulator. But there is a very real and obvious trend over time whereby in certain therapy areas, the regulatory standards, arguably for good reasons, go up. But this makes things more costly and more difficult. Uh, you know, there's some lovely time series, you know, anyone who's got the inclination, go and look at 
the prescribing information, the clinical data on the labels of diabetes drugs over time, mm-hmm. right? Go back and look at some of the first approved insulins, the first approved insulin analogs, compare those with the later insulin analogs, or go and look at, you know, metformin, compare that with the most recent drugs. And what you'll see are just enormous changes in the number and complexity of trials that are required to get drugs approved for different indications. Well, do you think that's part of the pre-thalidomide and post-thalidomide era as well? That made a big difference, but actually there's been an enormous difference post-thalidomide. So before thalidomide in the US anyway, you didn't have to show efficacy data. You had to show that your drug was not dangerous, but the regulator didn't require efficacy data. I think the presumption was that the market, i.e. physicians, would Would have a view on the efficacy of drugs, right? So you didn't, so there wasn't a sort of regulatory concern around efficacy. After thalidomide, there was. But even since then, the sort of amount and complexity of the data you need to bring uh, has increased a great deal. And it's also partly related to get the Beth of the Beatles problem. So if you look in crowded therapy areas where we've got lots of effective drug classes, quite rightly, both regulators and prescribers demand an awful lot more safety and efficacy data you know, than they would have done 30 years ago or 40 years ago where we didn't have many yeah. you know, known safe and effective drugs against which you had to compete. And how much of that is being driven by the payers as well, sort of the European HTA type system where they want more efficacy data specifically around, well, not and more effectiveness data, frankly. The honest answer is I don't know. And I think, again, if you look in diabetes, again, another good example, you'll see a kind of fragmentation of indications. So again, if you look at old diabetes drugs, they would be indicated to treat, you know, and I'm not giving this verbatim, I'm trying to give you a sense here, right? They would, they would have been indicated to treat, you know, type 2 diabetes, that would be the indication. If you look at drugs now, the indication will be, you know, to, te- to treat, you know, patients who have failed on or, you know, who have HbA1c that is still too high after metformin when used in conjunction with drugs A, B, and C. Right. right? And of course, you then have to run a specific trial that is in that particular group of patients. So, so uh, and in oncology, you see the same thing where you have this kind of fragmentation of indications. You know, that, again, means that even if the individual trials aren't bigger, and by the way, they are generally bigger, but even if the individual trials aren't bigger, you can't do one or two. You've got to do five, six, seven, eight, 15 trials to get the breadth of use um, that you require. So the throw money at it tendency. Obviously, we've been doing a lot of research looking at a lot of the spin-out community in California that's NIH-funded. Uh, We're seeing these NIH technologies move to small, medium-sized biotechs. And what we're seeing now is a 50-50 probability of market entry and a logistic regression costs about $5 billion. Is that an example of the throw money at it tendency? Not in the sense that we wrote about it. I think the point we made when we were writing the eRooms Law article is that for most of the period between 1950 and 2010, drug R&D was very cost-insensitive. So that if there was a problem the economic rational response to that problem was throw some money at it, right? And if you look at the estimates of financial returns on R&D investment or things, measures like return on equity in the drug industry, and you can calculate that taking into account R&D costs, which is probably the right way to do it. Mm -hmm. If you do either of those things, what you find is that the industry had really good returns on its R&D investment, probably until the late you know, 1990s, around 2000, and then they gradually started declining. So actually, for most of that period, between 1950 and, you know, maybe 2000, 2010, if you had an R&D problem, throwing money at it was the right answer, because actually, it was a very good business, returns were high, and more, more, more likely than not, you know, you would benefit from making that investment. 
but that stopped that sort of gr- became less and less true uh, <laughs> as the 2000s progressed has that corrected now a little bit are we seeing better returns now or just as price are prices just generally going up to cover a less efficient r d cost to a certain extent and this may be getting too technical and also reflects the problem the fact that i probably haven't looked in detail at the data for about a year so so generally speaking there's been a downward trend in r d returns since 2000 to the present day and the last year or two bumping around a bit depending on the precise measurement method but broadly speaking if you look at i would say technically reputable reports like the one that deloitte publishes you know they've had r&d returns declining over the last decade or so now below the cost of capital for big drug companies probably bumped up a bit this year but not much mm-hmm. other measures like return on equity adjusting for r&d again the drug industry now probably returning below the average of other sectors. There was an interesting uh, study out of Stern's Business School, uh, New York University, a couple of years ago, where they looked at net profitability. And it put the pharmaceutical sector now about 21st, just below the soft drink sector, which I found <laughs> quite interesting. So, so you, you, you've, you've potentially um, sort of pointed us to a, an area where I've got a bit of a sort of technical bee in my bonnet. To be, to be frank, I think on both sides of the policy debate, whether people are sort of advocating for the drug industry or against it, the technical quality of the policy debate on drug industry profits is poor and profit margins per se are almost entirely uninformative. And capitalists, the clue is in the name, are interested in capital and returns on capital. They're not called marginalists, they're called capitalists. Sure. And if you look at measures that take into account the capital intensity of the industry and you do it properly, yeah, the industry does not look particularly appealing, does not look like it's doing particularly well. Now, of course, that's not a good story for the drug industry when it's trying to lobby governments for sort of industrial policy support. And that's not a particularly attractive argument for people who want to criticise the drug industry for being too, too profitable. So it's quite interesting that both the critics and the advocates of the industry want everyone to think it's wildly profitable. Where do you think this mentality is coming from and why do you think it's changed? Is it just it's sort of a 20-year-ago mindset that hasn't adjusted to the reality, the current reality? So I think it's that most people who discuss this either lack or aren't interested in a, in a technically correct answer. Right? So they either, lack, they either lack the technical capability to have one or they don't care what it is. Right. right. So it's a lot of agendas. and So it's pretty easy to calculate the return on equity for the drug industry on pub- using publicly available data and correctly adjusting for R&D. You know, any finance textbook will tell you how to do it and the data are publicly available. But very few people in the policy debate bother doing it sure because it doesn't it's it may not help either whether you want to convince your government you're a great industry they should support or that you want to convince your government that drugs are much too expensive and you should give the industry a kicking (laughs) so the final of the four problems was the basic research versus brute force bias uh why don't you give us an overview of what that yeah so so this was probably a Controvert, probably one where we got the most argument. And to be frank, I think it's 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 difficult to sort of express criticisms like this subtly. And I, and I think I would accept that a great amount of the technical stuff done in the drug industry is both fantastic and diverse. Right. Sure. But I think the specific point we wanted to make is that certainly when we wrote the report, the had probably over the preceding twenty years been a sort of massive shift from certain drug discovery technologies through to target-based drug discovery and 
in some, but not in all of the industry, you know, high throughput screening. Sure. Now that is something of a caricature, but it was the industry's own caricature. You know, if you ask trade associations, how do you discover drugs? You know, that's pretty much what, what they said they'd do. Right? <laughs> and I think it was recognized in the industry that probably the sort of early naive implementation of that kind of approach had been much, much less productive than people expected. You know, and there are some lovely examples of it. So, you know, for example, the industry basically went from being quite good at discovering novel antibiotics using low through, well, relatively low throughput sort of natural product based methods and fermentation to being completely hopeless at discovering antibiotics between 1995 and 2005 using target based drug discovery and high throughput screening. And it's quite well documented. Yeah. And the numbers were huge. It was like 10 to the power of 10 or things like that. They were looking at all of it. Or, or, yeah. So, so, so. In 1930-ish, a guy working at Bayer called Gerhard Domak screened about 200 azo dye derivatives and found the world's second useful antimicrobial, a drug called sulfonylamide. So that was about 200 compounds. <laughs> Between 1995 and 2005, the global drug industry screened well over 10 to the 7 compounds yeah. in 100 high-throughput screening campaigns and found not one uh, broad-spectrum antibiotic that was worth pushing into clinical trials in man. Isn't the other challenge around antibiotics, though, it's particularly for antibiotics, and that is the more you use them, the less valuable they are. It's sort of a perishable resource in a certain sense. And anybody who's invented a very good antibiotic, they get small volume and it just sits on the shelf. Yeah, no, so um, the market for novel antibiotics is really tough. And um, it's also the case that some of the newer drugs have, have struggled to sell. So yeah, it's, there is a sort of, there is a, there, 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 there remains a sort of problem of, of selling new antibiotics, uh, which again is, uh, it seems to me to be negatively correlated with a number of policy articles that are written on the subject. <laughs> we have an overabundance of those, Jack, I think. <laughs> so in, if you look at these four really interesting problems and really great stuff, one of the things that's occurred since then, which the industry has evolved to do, is more open innovation as defined by Dr. Henry Chesborough at Berkeley. The idea that you don't keep your R&D internally, you do it through these open innovation partnerships. And we're seeing half a trillion dollars in this every 10 years now, 50 billion a year, almost equaling R&D budgets. Is that a way to sort of offset? And have we seen any impact of that on the productivity of companies? So, so the true answer is I don't know, but my prejudice, so this is a prejudice, sure. is that the structures within which people do stuff, or at least my opinion, is that the structures within which people do stuff is less important than the stuff people do. Sure. Let's come back to the e-rooms law problem, right? Let's suppose that in the oil industry, sucking oil out of the ground, it had got 100 times more expensive to suck a barrel of oil out of the ground, despite the fact that all of your drilling technology and your ability to detect deposits of oil vast distances through the rock had got much, much better. Right? If we saw that in the oil industry, I don't think many people would primarily blame either the cause or else the solution on the ownership structures of the entities that were involved in the oil business, they would suspect that maybe we run out of oil. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 in other words, the magnitude of the productivity trends have always pushed me away from sort of organizational type explanations. And that doesn't mean they're not important and it doesn't mean they can't help massively. And I'm aware of the literature that says, you know, certain sorts of innovation are very difficult in certain sorts of companies, right? Sure. But it just strikes me that the sort of magnitude of the productivity trends is such that I, that I, that I suspect what people do is more important than the sort of institutions in which people find them doing themselves. Having said that, I, another thing I suspect is that sort of open innovation is something that sort of happens by itself to a certain extent and then gets a name. 
And it may actually not be good or bad. It may just be a sort of consequence of other economic forces. So, for example, if I think about the drug industry, I think some of the open innovation is sort of supply led, right? So that over time, academics, particularly in you know universities that have a history of spinning out companies, learn that they can spin out companies. And similarly, ambitious scientists now realise that rather than going and working for a big drug company, you might be able to convince a venture capital firm to give you money. You can then pay yourself at least as much as the big drug company would have, would have paid you. Plus, if you're successful, you're a billionaire. And at the same time, I think sort of maturation of certain technologies has provided a market for outsourced services so that it is possible. Or rather, you don't need to be in a big drug company anymore to do drug discovery and early development. right? So I think some of that is driven by the sort of supply of knowledge and assets. And then the drug industry had to sort of react to that to a certain extent. It's, uh, and it's presented as a sort of post hoc, as a kind of sort of strategy. But actually, it's just kind of what's happened. The inevitability of the current economic situation has driven this to occur. And then we've sort of named it. Yeah, after. the economics have sort of driven a deconstruction of the industry. Sure. And then people dress it up, give it a nice name and say it's open innovation. Well, you, know, you get tenure. <laughs> I, but but, but, my, but I, I would say all those opinions are not based on any great... You know, deep knowledge of the subject, but that's that's my my prejudice on the matter. Sure, but again, I I guess from my standpoint, what I'm intrigued with is, do you think that that is then offsetting Irum's law, or is it just sort of we're just sort of treading water, and it's just another way to get the same sort of productivity, just without as much liability internally? Again, at the risk of being heretical, there are two bits of work I've come across in recent years that have sort of made me slightly skeptical of the again of the sort of overall productivity the net societal productivity benefits from, from, from open innovation or from this, this deconstruction you see in the industry. One of them is a very simple paper that was published in 2017 by Thakor, Lowe, and possibly others, who simply looked at the investment returns on the biotech sector versus the drug industry from, for the drug industry, I think 1930, possibly, or 1935 to 2015, and for the biotech industry from 1980 to 2015. Now, if you sort of listen to the sort of, you know, if one had just sort of read the general rhetoric and hadn't bothered reading the Thakor and Low paper, you know, you'd have had the sense that biotech was kind of vibrant, fast growing, gaining market share, capturing more and more of the pipeline, was being acquired at ridiculous prices by big drug companies, thus making biotech shareholders rich. But actually, if you looked at the investment returns, including dividends, you would find that you would have done far better buying the allegedly sluggish, old, non-innovative drug companies than owning the stock of the biotech firms. Now, a little bit of that depends precisely on how you define big pharma versus biotech, right? But but that's a slightly counterintuitive result. So these innovative, value-creating, whizzy biotech firms who are gaining, who were genuinely gaining share of the pipeline and of end markets somehow made their shareholders far less money than <laughs> big pharma. I would say maybe, you know, again, you're an analyst. I mean, that it could also be that maybe big farmers just really, really smart with how it spends its money too. Which takes me on to the second observation, which is some based on the observations of French economists, um, Biet de Villemier and Bruno Versavel, who I've been doing some work with. And they, I think, have done some very interesting work that suggests that the structure of the market for pharmaceutical knowledge or IP is such that the big entities effectively or the big pharma companies are very good at appropriating the economic value that is created by other players, and which arguably provides a disincentive for the other players to invest in 
knowledge creation. Sure. Those two things make me suspect that open innovation may counterintuitively be very good for the incumbents, yeah, but actually may not, may actually have mean there's not as much capital as you would expect going into the sort of novelty side of things precisely because the incumbents can appropriate that value and the people who invest in the novelty make substandard returns. But there's also then a question about barriers to entry because if it would be possible for those smaller biotechs to actually gain market entry directly as opposed to having to do the open innovation partnerships, at least that was one of the points that had a lot of friction with adaptive licensing is that it would potentially allow a breakdown of a lot of these barriers to entry which currently exist like phase three. Is that potentially um, another way around this, another way to skin the cat? As it were? So, so I'll give you a slightly tangential answer, but I think venture capital firms have understood this problem. They haven't described it in the same way as the French economists who I know, right? <laughs> They've sort of come at it a different way. But effectively, I think the venture capital industry has realized that the way to make money out of their assets is to fund them in such a way that they can bring products to market. And they, 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 or and that they don't have to do deals too early with big incumbent drug companies. I.e., sort of an R and D service model is a very difficult model to make money out of. Even though, arguably, from a societal perspective, if you could make money out of it, it would be more efficient because it would mean that the technologists would diffuse quicker, right? And you wouldn't have to build a whole bunch of infrastructure and raise lots of expensive venture capital to to appropriate the value of the inventions. So, Jack. Is there been any turnaround at all in Irum's law? And if so, why? So, I mean, we wrote the original paper. We, we published it in 2012. We probably wrote it in 2010-11. And um, lucky for us, we hedged our bets a bit and suggested things might be starting to turn around because they subsequently did. And they turned around. We suggested they might turn around for two reasons. We were totally wrong on one of those reasons and a little bit right on the other. <laughs> but effectively... I think what what happened was around 2010, the decline in number of drugs per billion dollars spent by the drug industry effectively stopped, right? And it's been bumping around. It may even be go, it may even have gone up a bit. There are several factors that explain it. So one is the molecular slicing and dicing in oncology. I think started to mean more stuff came out of the pipe. So the ability to identify precise patient groups who might respond to a drug started giving you more successful trials than effectively lumping those patients together and diluting the signal. We saw a vaguely similar thing in rare diseases, many of which are monogenetic. And for those monogenetic diseases, the, in my view anyway, the sort of R&D infrastructure that the drug industry had, had built, for those monogenetic diseases, that, that infrastructure actually doesn't work too badly at finding things. And the economics of rare diseases meant that suddenly that the interest in finding cures for those diseases increased. And then I think in parallel, you had some sort of regulatory innovation, right? And this was both a combination of the regulators doing- Breakthrough designation. Yeah. And also I think innovation around the way, for example, phase one trials or early trials in oncology are done, right? So a combination of better disease segmentation, a focus in oncology and rare diseases where that sort of genetic segmentation really helps- and then sort of regulatory and clinical trial related innovation, I think, stopped the decline 
And that's related again to the, the shift you've seen in where pipelines are focused now, right? They're focused in oncology, focused in rare diseases. Also, the thing about rare diseases and the research we've done on them is, you know, we see that it takes about three years less on average for a rare disease asset to come to market overall. So it's a more tractable pathway. That said, you and I have both discussed this and we've had some disagreements on this, but in general, they don't make as much revenue either. They average between 70 to 120 million a year. And there's some question if some of those rare diseases are actually breaking even. Well, to be frank, most launch drugs don't break even. Right? So, <laughs> so, you know, so if that's the case of rare diseases, rare diseases may not be that different from everything else in that the, like many industries, the drug industry makes disproportionate returns from a relatively small number of very, very successful products. Yeah, it's becoming the blockbuster model like Hollywood in some respects. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just a very, I mean, it's a very skewed returns model, right? So uh, roughly, roughly half of the economic value of the drug industry comes from the top 10% of launch drugs. So you're working on ways to predict and validate drug discovery to get around some of these problems. You're of the opinion that you can actually improve this at the front end through better predictive modeling and through better analytics. Can you tell us a bit about your research and some of your findings, Jack? This work actually stems almost directly out of the things I got interested in working on the old E-Rooms Law stuff. And again, I, I, I've talked before about this ugly contrast. All of the things that people think are important for drug discovery get hundreds, thousands, millions, or billions of times cheaper and better, but it costs 100 times more to discover a drug now than it did in 1950, right? So if one is interested in things that might be materially causal there, they have to be things that can explain orders of magnitude of efficiency change, right? So if it can only explain a twofold change in efficiency or a fivefold change in efficiency, it's probably not that important, right? Because actually we, we've, got to, we've got to explain many orders of magnitude. So that's one thing to hold in mind. And then the, the other thing to hold in mind is, or rather with that in mind, I got very interested in trying to build sort of formal sort of mathematical models of drug R&D's kind of search process, and to look for the parameters to which the search search efficiency is very, very sensitive. And it turns out if you do that, you can think of a rather screening and disease models. People use them because they think the output of the models tells them something about how useful things are going to be when you put them into people. So, so to put it as simplest, you know, imagine that, that, we had, that we had a particular rat that we wanted to test things in. We might have a thousand compounds or a hundred compounds we could test in the rat. We would consider the rat model to be a good rat model if the rank ordering of things that came out of the rat then matched, assuming we had infinite money and no ethics, the rank <laughs> ordering of those 100 or 1,000 things if we then ran 1,000 pivotal trials in people. Sure. So that's kind of operational definition of model validity. And it turns out that if you use that sort of definition of model validity, you can trade it off against other parameters like throughput. How many items could we afford to test in our rat, for example? And the short story is that very, very small changes in model validity are much more important in your ability to find things that will work in people than rather large changes in throughput. And to me, the effect size looked powerful enough to be able to explain some of these orders of magnitude changes of efficiency we've seen over time. So the basic idea is this. 50 years ago, the world had a bunch of screening and disease models, some of which were valid and some of which weren't. We tested drugs in them. The screening and disease models that were valid identified drugs that when then when tested into people worked, thus rendering those screening and disease models commercially and academically redundant. We don't need 
dog stomach acid secretion models to discover histamine antagonists anymore, precisely because the dog stomach acid secretion models were very good at identifying H2 antagonists, right? And anything we would have produced is now out there and it's generic, so that market is effectively filled. Yeah. So we selectively retire the high validity models because they give us, they identify drugs that cure diseases, thus rendering themselves redundant. On the other hand, those diseases for which the models do not predict clinical utility persist without drugs. And hence, ironically, we keep using the same models precisely because they don't work very well. <laughs> uh, and I think one can make a pretty strong historical case, you know, at least in some diseases, if one looks at, for example, at models used in solid tumours, sure. they're used precisely because they have not yet rendered themselves redundant. And they haven't yet rendered themselves redundant because they haven't identified drugs that cure the disease in question. But essentially, and again, at the risk of being reductionist here and oversimplifying, assay quality will be quantity, I guess. That's the, if I can boil that down into one sentence, is that is that fair? Yes, but I, I would add one thing. The, the way I try and describe it now is like everyone doing drug discovery right knows that lousy models are not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> There's no one out there advocating, hey, let's use a bunch of junky models that don't predict anything. I think the point I would make is until you run the decision theoretic maths, you don't realize that the thing that everyone already thinks is important is more important than everyone already thinks. Okay. <laughs> right. This thing, everyone knows it's important, but actually it's it's really, really important. I think that's the point. The problem is if you don't have a model that'll work, you're sort of forced to taking a, a junky model and then trying to jam as much through it as possible with the hope of trying to yeah. trying to hit pay dirt. Or better still, you're forced to think harder about how you evaluate screening disease models. Sure. And actually and I think most or much of my work now is based around that sort of practical problem, which is given a bunch of different, not very good, probably rat models to look at Alzheimer's, how do you either pick which one is best or how do you pick an optimally informative set cognizant of the fact that even modest improvements in your ability to know which one is best or being able to pick a maximally informative set is very valuable. Sure. So it's basically trying to make rather hard subjective judgments a little bit better, nudging them in the right direction. That's one thing. And then the other thing is, I think, helping people with problem choice, right? So again, if you're a venture capital firm, there may be certain R&D problems that are more tractable than others on the basis of the models that can be deployed against those problems. But if that's true, you need better ways of deciding which, which of the models may be better than others. But if we look at Alzheimer's again, bringing up your example, we thought we had a good theoretical case around the amyloid beta thesis. You could look at the MRI scans, you could see the plaque building up. I mean, again, it's very hard to sit at a presentation and see the MRI scans and not think, wow, there's something here. But again, it's the ultimate correlation is not causation because we've tried 70% of the models that have come out over the last 15 years and Alzheimer's disease have been around the amyloid thesis and we've not gotten anything. So what are the options then if what we think my gosh, it sure looks like that should be working. But if it doesn't work, when do you pull the plug then? I won't answer your question with relation to Alzheimer's, if you don't mind. And that's because one thing I've learned is that the gritty details of models are very gritty. <laughs> right. right? Okay. And I know some people who've done a lot of work on Alzheimer's models, but I haven't done a lot of work on Alzheimer's models, right? So I would rather not speculate. I will give you a couple of examples that may be more useful, though. Sure. In oncology, with, with in vitro oncology models, there is quite a strong historic case that can be made around their application and misapplication and what might be done differently if the economics could be made to stack up. 
and I'll try and make this answer brief without making it so brief that it's uninterpretable. <laughs> if one looks at the sort of two waves of pharmacological innovation before immuno-oncology, the first one was the sort of rise of cytotoxic chemotherapy, and the second one was the kind of rise of the targeted agents. Now, the cytotoxics were predominantly tested for various practical and pragmatic reasons in rapidly dividing cell lines, which were typically monoclonal. So real cancers are very genetically heterogeneous and diverse. There's evolution within them. Different metastases of the same tumor will be different, right? But actually, that's not what most cancer models look like. Most cancer models get one cell line, they stick it in a pot, and you try and poison it with something. Now, the cytotoxics, it turns out, which were tested largely against fast-growing monoclonal cell lines, in the rare cases where they're curative, they tend to be curative in very fast-dividing tumors, i.e. the models are fast-dividing. You have models that are comprised almost entirely of fast-dividing tumors. Lo and behold, they're not bad for <laughs> discovering drugs that can cure cancer if you happen to have a very fast-dividing cancer, but are utterly lousy for curing any other cancer, which is most advanced human solid tumors. Which is why the most effective monoclonal antibodies have been in leukemias, I suppose. Well, or, 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 now the tar coming on to the targeted agents, right, the monoclonals, again, most models that would have de deployed during the discovery of targeted therapies tended to be genetically homogeneous. Sure. There are arguably two broad classes of targeted agents which are very effective. You have drugs like Gleevec, which effectively treats what is arguably a monoclonal hyperplasia and not a true genetically heterogeneous cancer. So Gleevec is exceptional. It doesn't look like most cancer. It looks like cancer you grow in a dish, right? Most cancer you grow in a dish doesn't look like real cancer. Gleevec treats something that looks like cancer that grows in a dish. It treats it very effectively. But most targeted therapies are not nearly as effective because most cancers don't look like the sort of cancer you could grow in a dish that is treated well by Gleevec. <laughs> Other hematological malignancies that are very well treated they're actually treated simply effectively by chemical uh, amputation. They have lineage markers that don't mark them out as cancer. They simply mark them out as a white blood cell of a certain sort. Sure. And it turns out in a world with modern antibiotics, you can wipe out large populations of people's white blood cells. and They do pretty well. The point is that effectively, we get cancer drugs that cure the occasional cancer that happens to look like the models of cancer we grow in pots, right? Okay. And we don't get cancer drugs to cure the vast majority of cancers, which don't look like the cancer models we grow in pots. So the solution is bite the bullet, deploy a lot of capital, accept lower throughput, and have expensive low throughput cancer models that have a lot of the complexity and heterogeneity of the cancers that real people have most of the time. Are you hopeful we're going to get there with these models? I mean, I think there's a huge amount going on at the moment. I'm not, I'm not sort of nihilistic about this. I think um, I am, I would say I have not terribly well-informed optimism about a lot of the stuff that's going on around sort of deep phenotyping and more sort of systematic measurement of model systems. I do, however, think there are certain economic problems, right? So the intellectual property regime and sort of drug payment regimes are set up to reward chemical novelty. Sure. Right. And actually we're in a world where arguably the rate limiting step is no longer chemical novelty. It's, it's, it's valid model novelty. Sure. Right? And that's a problem. I wouldn't say it's glass half full or glass half empty. I'd say, you know, the glass is 50% full. <laughs> no, I, I'm trying to think of a sort of neutral version of half full, half empty. I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pessimistic, but I do think there are some economic problems that, that make, model-related innovation more difficult than it should be. What about combo therapies? Is this potentially an answer where we see more combo usage? 
But then again, that gets into the pricing and economics problem, which is going to be hugely difficult. There's another problem with combination therapies and models. There are very, very few good tox models for combination therapy. Yeah. So far, the experience has been, I mean, at least if you look at targeted therapies, oncogene targeted therapies, a big problem has been the combinations tend to be very, very toxic in a way that's very hard to predict until you get stuff into the clinic. If you look at where innovation has been occurring over the last 20, 30 years, there's been a huge evolution, shall we say a shift in R&D from Europe to the United States with late stage value creation. There's still a lot of assets here in Europe, but we don't see them commercializing here. They're commercializing in the United States and there's becoming a bleed of technology from Europe. Do you think that this is a problem? Ultimately, is it just the market speaking? Do you think it's sustainable? I think there is sort of policy choice to be made in Europe, but it's not clear to me it's the policy choice that the policymakers are necessarily often presented with, right? So okay. there's a guy I used to, used to, a former competitor of mine called Simon Baker. Years ago, I asked him for a punchy quote about drug R&D. And he, boy, oh boy, he gave me one, which and it was something <laughs> like this. Um, drug R&D is a bit like NATO between 1948 and 1989. <laughs> um, of great benefit to Europeans, but largely paid for by Americans. <laughs> so that's one I think fact, you know, that's bunch bear in mind. I think a second fact is if one looks at what, in my view, are the appropriate financial measures to look at, the drug industry is not delivering particularly great returns for its shareholders. Now, shareholders are only one constituency, right? So you think of, you know, you've got sort of possibly four constituencies when, when you're a policymaker, you're thinking about the drug industry. There are, there are patients and health services. That's a one constituency. You've got people working in the drug industry. That's a second constituency. You've got the shareholders of drug companies. They're another constituency, mostly pension, you know, mostly pension, funds, yeah. pension funds and so forth. And then you've got a wider society, right? So that, that would be, for example, the restaurant that a pensioner who had a big pension because their drug company paid dividends <laughs> went to eat at, right? So you have a sort of general economic constituency, right? Just sort of national growth. You've got some people working in the drug industry who make nice salaries. You've got the shareholders who may have big or small pensions as a result of their drug industry investment. And then you've got the patients and the health system. Well, as I said, the shareholders don't seem to me that they're doing that great at the moment, right? So if American shareholders want to lose money, that's fine for a European. Well, maybe it's not, right? But in a sense, <laughs> what, you know, if, if, if Americans want to put loads of money into the drug industry and lose it, discovering drugs that I as a European use, that seems to be no bad thing. If the drug's going to be discovered anyway, my health system's going to benefit from it and my patients are going to benefit from it. So it seems to me that the bits that I'm losing are the fact that I don't have a well-paid drug industry workforce in my company, in my country, and that those people are not going out and you know eating at restaurants and helping the rest of the economy. So, so that's one way of looking at it. I think there's another way of looking at it, which is this sort of freeloading idea. I think a lot of Europeans would sort of cheer at the idea that we're sort of freeloading off the Americans when it comes to healthcare in a way that they wouldn't cheer if we were talking about carbon capture sure. or you know environmental legislation but that seems to be a sort, of, a sort of separate argument but it seems to me from a sort of selfish economic perspective and sort of welfare perspective it's not obvious to me that the economics of the drug industry is such at the moment that there's a huge economic policy argument to be made one thing i would say though and again this may be influenced by work i'm doing on oncology at the moment i think and again this is not this is not based on ignorance but it's not based on stupendous analysis 
I don't think we need to be doing it just because the Americans are doing it. And I think the drug industry, because of the, the, the financial sums involved are so large, it becomes something of a magnet for therapeutic innovation. And there may be more efficient, effective modes of therapeutic innovation that one could do, uh, which would have better trade payback. And oncology is an example I've got at the front of my mind at the moment, right? So, you know, oncology drug under is terribly expensive. Lots of drugs come to market. Some are great, but many aren't. But actually, there's a whole bunch of sort of low-cost behavioral interventions that one can do that seem to have as big a survival impact on cancer outcomes, but are not funded and are not investable at the moment because of the way intellectual property markets and drug markets work, right? So, so again, if I was sort of advocating for innovation in Europe, I might possibly advocate for pursuing some of those roads less traveled rather than simply trying to replicate what is already what already may be happening rather effectively in the US. Sure. Unfortunately, the drug freeloading may be stopping too, because you are this is becoming a US political issue now, where there will be penalties, pricing penalties, and, and Europe will probably no longer receive access. And these things are starting to be laid out legislatively. Do you think that'll get people's attention or do you think people will just be, well, that's just the way it is? Yeah, I know I do think that will get people's attention. And what the re- what the response will be, I don't know. Yeah. Again, I think it's quite easy to sort of mobilise a public behind the message that you know. Again, if one thinks about you know, so you know, arguably, you know, medicines in the long run become a public good, even if they're very expensive and access is poor when they're discovered. As we've discussed, eventually they become generic and they yeah. are a public good. That's well, correct. Generics, are, you know, generics are the gifts that keep on giving, and. In my view, there's a big sort of hole in the broader policy debate. There isn't consensus on the value that we get from pharmacological innovation. I don't think there isn't even consensus on the methods one would use to estimate the value we get from pharmacological innovation. Right. So sure, you have lots of health systems who have cost effectiveness studies, but that's not really the same thing. Right. So, for example, if you look at what NICE do in the UK, you know, they look at how much a drug costs this year and say, is it cost effective? But what they don't do is they don't say, well, that drug becomes virtually free in 10 years. Now, doctors and nurses don't become free in 10 years time. Doctors and nurses don't go generic. And nearly all of the therapeutic value we get from drugs come from the generic pharmacopoeia. Nine out of 10 prescriptions roughly in the UK, probably more in the UK, nine out of 10 prescriptions in the US are for generic medicines. Arguably, the generic medicines are more valuable on average than branded medicines because of the medicines that's the test of time. Nearly all of the healthcare value the world gets is from generics, but nearly all of the policy debate is about the price of branded drugs. There isn't a consensus on how much value we get from pharmacological innovation. So the whole argument about how much we should spend on R&D is in something of a vacuum because we don't know what value we get from R&D. And then there's a second argument, which is who pays for it and how it's paid for. So ideally... (laughs) You know, so we're sort of haggling about who pays for what when actually we've got no idea about how much we should be paying. (laughs) Now, one thing that that strikes me, probably nearly 20 years ago now, the UK government had something called the Stern Report, where they got an eminent economist to opine on the economics of climate change. And one reason they did it was they wanted a bit, I think, to try and support some policy clarity, because unless one has a view on how to measure the economics of climate change, how to, how to understand how big a problem it is, it's very difficult to know how much to spend to try to prevent it. My view is the sort of pharma innovation world needs a, something a bit like a stern review. And not everyone's going to agree, but you know, if you could get the, sort of, the centrist 50% to agree roughly, roughly how one measures the value sure. of, 
of therapeutic innovation, pharmaceutical innovation, it's much more easy then to have a sensible debate about how expensive drugs could be, right? And in the absence of that, debates about whether drugs should be you know, more expensive and we need more innovation or cheaper and we need less, it's, it's, it's actually a sort of a debate that happens in, I wouldn't say a fact vacuum, but it's a debate that happens with much less basis than it should, given how important it is. This was always part of the debate around Savaldi, I found really particularly annoying around hepatitis C, because the cost you're paying now actually defray a lot of costs down the hospital line for those one in five patients who would require a liver transplant that we're no longer seeing. But those costs are in completely different parts of the healthcare system. And essentially, you're creating free riders that are uncompensated and uncalculated because they're not captured by quality often. We've just got a real problem with how we're accounting for these things. No, I agree. I agree. But to be frank, it's not clear to me if one does it properly, how things will shake out. It could be we discover, I mean, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we discovered lots and lots of, you know, that, you know, we should be paying much less, for example, for cancer drugs. I wouldn't be at all surprised if that, if one does it properly, that's what you find out. Right. And it may be we found out there's a whole bunch of things we should be paying a lot more for. Sure. But at the moment, I think the sort of policy debate is poorly served by the sort of the data that is put before it. Jack Scannell, always a pleasure, sir. It's a shame we can't have a pint. One of these days, maybe we will. Thank you for your time, Jack. No, thanks very much. Bye.